Welcome to Design Lab. I'm your host, Bon Ku. On this show, we explore the question, how might we design healthier lives? Usually, we only have one guest on the show, but today we have four designers from all over the planet. They all work at Dahlberg Design. It's a global design firm. You are going to be hearing from Aika Matemu, Pragya Mishra, Joy Kendi, and Mira Tamrat. My producer, Rob Paglisa, I apologize for the lack of shows over the past few months. We wanted to drop a show every week. We weren't able to do that, but we have some great guests lined up for this winter. And I think you'll be enjoying who we have on the show. Thank you to our listeners who have reached out to us by Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, email, sending us encouragement. We love that. We even love it better when you rate us on Apple Podcasts. You can go there, give us five stars, and leave us a comment. Believe it or not, this is the best way for you to support this show and tell others about this show as well. I hope you enjoy my conversation with four amazing designers from Dahlberg Design. We talk about how designers can be global health storytellers, the need for creativity in global health, and the challenges of social media misinformation in vaccine distribution. I'm so happy to have the team from Dahlberg Design with me. And we have such a great group. So I'm going to have them introduce themselves, what they do and where they're currently located. We have a truly global team uh, here. Thanks, Bon. And nice to be on this podcast and have a chance to chat with you. Our team's super excited to do this and I'm really happy to be involved. So maybe I can go and then I'll pass it on popcorn style to the rest of the team. So my name is Pragya, uh, Pragya Mishra, and I'm uh, based out of Seattle. I'm an associate partner and creative director at Dark Book Design. And my work in design has always been at the cross section of design and global health. And my background is essentially I trained as a visual communication designer. I've done design for social impact. And, you know, since then I've been working a lot in international development and global health because of my role at Dahlberg. Um, yeah, it's early morning. So if I speak with my morning brain, please excuse me. And I'll pass it on to my the rest of my awesome team from Nairobi. Thank you, Pragya, and good morning. Is it morning where you are? It's currently <laughs> 9 a.m. for me, and I think 6 a.m. for Pragya. Is that right? What time is it there where you all are at? It's uh, 5 p.m., so 5 we're getting into wow. our evening. Yes. <laughs> I at least you and I match our lights, you know, <laughs> like we both have lights on. Good evening from Nairobi, East Africa. I'm Aika Matemu and I'm a director at Dalberg Design um, based in Nairobi. I've been with Dalberg Firm for close to three years now, leading the design portfolio in the Africa region. Prior to Dalberg, my past life has been in the social entrepreneurship space and mainly in the health healthcare entrepreneurship space. And I've worked with uh, a diversity of organizations that are serving underserved populations in this region, building innovations, designing with community. And yeah, I'm really excited to be here with you all. Over to the rest of Nairobi. Um, hi, Bon and everyone else in the team. Um, happy to be here. My name is Joy Kendi. I'm a senior designer um, with the Dalbad design team based here in Nairobi. 
I've been with the Dalbag team for the last um, one and a half years. And my background mostly in designing products and services um, with a focus on technology and technology for impact. I have also done some work in the health sector and gender, but again, mostly prototyping products and services impact. I'll hand over to my colleague, Miret, and thanks, Bon, for hosting us. Hi, my name is Mehret Tamrat, and I'm a designer in Dalberg Design's Nairobi studio. I've been with Dalberg Design for just over a year now and also worked as a strategy consultant before that with Dalberg Advisors. Before Dalberg, I, I worked in the ed tech sphere as an instructional designer and also product designer. Awesome. Such a diverse background. I'm so excited for this conversation. So let's dive into the COVID-19 vaccine equity project. This is a project that you all are working on. What is this project? Why did this start? What's it about? Maybe I can give a little bit of an overview of what the COVID-19 vaccine equity project was, because, you know, this is an initiative that we started and we worked on at Dalberg Design for um, a better part of um, 2021. Um, and 2020, it was an initiative that started uh, through the partnership of three different uh, organizations. So JSI, which is John Snow Incorporated, Dahlberg and Dahlberg Design, and also Sabin Vaccine Institute. And the three of us came together with funding from the Skoll Foundation to essentially look at how we can support ministries of health in low and middle income countries to prepare for and operationalize equitable COVID-19 vaccine programs. That's a mouthful, but it essentially means, you know, there is um, globally, there is a COVID-19 tools accelerator and specifically it's country readiness and delivery work stream that is uh, held by WHO and its other partners like Gavi, UNICEF, etc. That is responsible for uh, supplying COVID-19 vaccines and immunization supplies and infrastructure to um, LMICs. And I think with this initiative, we were trying to, you know, make this process a bit more equitable and see if there's a way to turn it on its head and make sure that the countries are represented, their needs are spoken about. There's a channel of open communication, um, both from the global to the local levels, but also from the local to the global levels. And, you know, this initiative lasted for a year. We've actually closed it up. We uh, worked in four different countries to identify different needs of what the ministries of health wanted. And of course, based on where we do, where we have these conversations, there is obviously very different needs based on different contexts, right? So for example, in Ethiopia, geography can play a role. They needed a lot more support in planning and coordination. In Ecuador, they were working with the private sector and trying to loop them in, in vaccine distribution. In Kenya, they wanted insights on both planning uh, and coordination of how the vaccines would drop, where they would be distributed, but they also wanted insights on the demand side. So how would people receive it? What do we need to do to prepare for it? And that's basically one of the things that we'll double click into in this con. But we also worked with Nepal and we thought about how we could help there. So our funding ran out last year because the donors were still donors and this entire environment was still grappling with it. And we had actually started before the vaccines even came out. So maybe we were too early in this work. Wait, wait, you were but even before the vaccines came out? Why <laughs> would you think that? Like, obviously it's a need now, but 
what led to that foresight that this would be a need and a global design challenge? I, I think, um, to be honest, I think like a lot of it was uh, because we knew that people were already working on vaccines, right? And there was the pillar, the active pillar, and you know the country delivery work stream were already set up. So the world had been planning for the drop. It's just that there wasn't enough production and the testing was still ongoing. And in the vaccine world, it can, um, you know, that part of the process typically in a non-pandemic year can go on for 10 years, but it can also uh, be done really quickly as we realize now. And it happened quickly soon after, but even then I think the uh, production took a while to ramp up. And, um, you know, all of this was ramping up. We were sure that, Globally, vaccines would be needed everywhere. This is not a pandemic happening in, you know, the US or uh, in the UK where the vaccines were being developed, right? It's a place where the entire world would have to come together and make sure that everyone was immunized and everyone's needs were represented equitably in the world. So I think that the, um, I think there was a need on our part. And, you know, I think it's the nature of the work we do, which is more human-centered design, making sure we are facilitators of dialogue and stuff that this idea was more of something that came naturally to us in and this consortium was thinking about it ahead of uh, maybe when it was required but I think over the course all of the work we've done has naturally gotten absorbed into more local uh, organizations and local actors so we didn't really need this initiative what we needed was actually the dialogue to happen and now there are lots of forums and a lot of work has come out of this initiative uh, including the research work we did that's now being absorbed in you know different sort of places and different uh, organizations globally Aika, I think your hand is raised so jump in thanks uh I didn't want to interrupt you <laughs> Um, I, I did want to just add a little bit uh, on on that answer about, you know, why were we thinking about vaccine equity um, before even vaccines were in distribution? And more so to what, you know, Pragya has already mentioned, I think historically, if you look at where vaccine production happens, it is primarily happening in the global north. And when you think about the relationships that these research institutions and, and pharmaceutical companies have with governments in these regions, often the first priority is not thinking about other regions that, that require vaccines. I think first priority is almost to take like a, a nationalist sort of approach to, to vaccine distribution. And so I think preempting this and learning historically about vaccine distribution, if you think about existing vaccines uh, for children, there is a global challenge with supply chain and vaccines reaching, reaching populations that don't have vaccine production happening in those regions. And I think the exciting thing coming out of this is we have seen almost like a, an urgent call for more local homegrown vaccine production to be happening, particularly in the region, and um, to move away from this reliance of vaccine production from the global north coming into the global south. And I think, you know, just coming back to the point, um, I, I think that all of that kind of preempted the need to have a focus on, on vaccine equity ahead of time. You all were so spot on, and I'm kind of curious to know, what are your thoughts from 
those of you who are in Kenya right now, what's your perspective on countries like the U.S. of we're getting our boosters, we just open up immunizations or vaccines to uh, five to 11 year olds in our country. Then we have uh, the news of last week, Aaron Rodgers, the quarterback for Green Bay Packers, who is not vaccinated, got COVID, who lied about it on a national stage. What, <laughs> you must think we're idiots. What do you think is going on when so many people in other countries have not even had their first vaccine? Yeah, great question. Oh my, this we can talk about forever. <laughs> it's been interesting and I'd, I'd love, you know, for, for Joy and, and Mirad to chime in here, but the vaccine, the COVID vaccine journey in this part of the world has been very emotive. And, um, you know, even from some of the insights that we gathered from this research that we did in, in Kenya, the source of hesitancy is not homogenous. You know, it's, it's just coming from different places. And this, this fear is, is sometimes quite inherent in people. And so we've heard many stories, including in my own direct family, um, of people who said, you know, we can't take the vaccine because the Americans are not taking it, you know, especially if there's a, a, some sort of public declaration or if it's coming from a religious institution or a religious cha uh, channel. And, and um, American religious institutions have great influence, especially in the Kenyan market and um, have presence in, in Kenya as well. And so there's this interesting flow of information that's coming and seeping in from these different places. And there's quite a bit of strong messaging around not taking vaccines and, and the reasons around that. And so as much as you'd think that, you know, there, there isn't a connection, there is a connection. And um, can, can and I just interrupt and actually. make sure I heard you right? So some of the groups in the U.S. who are vaccine resistant, hesitant, they're not taking the vaccine, that influences certain populations in Kenya uh, that that they're not getting the vaccines because these groups in the U.S. aren't. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, and I mean, I think mostly religious affiliations, and 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 I think that it's been challenging for the government to overturn that narrative. And I, I think there's also just been limited communication that's also come from the government in terms of trying to address some of these misconceptions and fears. I think the role of social media is also big here. And I, I'm gonna put you on the spot, Joy, maybe to talk a little bit about the role that social media has played on vaccine hesitancy in, in Kenya and, and spreading misinformation. Um, uh, Joy, can I put um, you in Joy before you jump in, just one quick add. I think so. This is a really important point, not only because you know we don't realize sitting in the US how the perceptions here affect the world, but also if I speak, so I'm Indian and you know I've had a COVID hit India in the middle quite bad. And I think like one of the things that happens in the US pretty uh, strongly is the production quality of social media messages that go out is really high. So the minute some misinformation comes out on WhatsApp in the US, it spreads like wildfire everywhere in Kenya, in India, like people just and because it's so well produced, people actually assign a certain degree of legitimacy to misinformation and also quite often misinformation can be quite juicy and interesting and captures the imagination of you know folks who are 
probably assuming that because this is produced so well or because you know people are watching videos of magnets sticking sticking on people's necks and stuff this must be true and that can have quite a quite like a blazing effect on uh, the whole misinformation trend but Troy please uh, go ahead and jump in and you can speak to the more specifics of uh, what we found in Kenya. Yeah, you're very right. I think social media can be a good tool, but also a very unregulated. Um, and what we found with the people we were speaking to during our research is that the access to information is um, quite varied, as Iker said. Um, we had people getting their information from community members and so on. Um, but with WhatsApp, uh, my mother now has it. My grandmother has um, WhatsApp. Um, so a message, uh, a video a video can be downloaded from TikTok. We had a very old woman tell us about a TikTok video she put on WhatsApp. And this video looked um, legitimate. It was supposedly a professor who had said a vaccine will cause infertility in Kenya. And these were not people in Nairobi, which is a capital city here in Kenya. We're talking to people in um, the rural areas. So yeah, social media has played a huge role in spreading misinformation. And coupled with the government and other regulatory bodies not um, sharing the facts, then people were, there were stories people were seeing in the international media, for example, about the adverse effects you could get from um, some of the vaccine brands. When you look at local media sources, these things are not being addressed. And that resulted in people feeling like the government was lying or that the vaccine brands um, that you are getting here were different from what was um, in the U.S. or other, other Western countries. Joy, you said there were older people getting information from TikTok? Is that right? Do they understand you correctly? Because my kids have TikTok and that's how yeah, they're addicted to it, I think. But it, people are watching TikTok videos on vaccine misinformation. Is that correct? That's correct. And not they not, don't necessarily have to have TikTok accounts. It's pretty easy these days to just download a video, do a screen recording and send it to anyone on WhatsApp. Wow. So yeah, you, I, I am not on TikTok, but I was able to get, Mirette and I are able to get some of these videos from people in very rural areas of Kenya. So this mis misinformation about the virus is spreading like a virus across the world just as quickly it is incredible. Um, you know, this a whole misinformation um, spread is a pretty good reminder of how connected the world has become. You know, like more than anything else, more than the supply chains, which are broken now, thanks to the pandemic, more than all of the other things that we think about. I think if you track the various sources of where misinformation comes from, you'll see how connected the world really is and how people pick up on, you know, things that they find provocative or interesting, which, you know, misinformation has a really good knack for being and which is something that people with good information actually struggle to turn into compelling narrative and compelling media that people could take on and, you know, just easy to digest information. As designers, one of your superpowers is storytelling. And do you feel that as designers, there's an important role in global health? Because when you think about global health, you usually don't think of designers, you know, you think of 
healthcare workers, maybe some politicians thrown in there, NGOs, field workers, but you don't think about designers. I'm curious to know what are your thoughts on the role of design um, and creativity in global health? Yeah, um, I think increasingly so there there is a role for us as designers to play the global health storytelling um, genre. And and this is something that I think we speak about quite a bit, Dalberg Design, in terms of um, how do we authentically represent the voices of the communities that we're working with. And, and that is a difficult thing to do. And I think th- there's many sort of schools of thought around that, but one that is increasingly becoming a shift in, in our practice and the way that we show up is shifting that agency to the communities themselves to tell their own stories. And I think that's important because if you think about, you know, like you mentioned NGOs and and politicians, the motives aren't, I mean, I think maybe the the intention is good um, most of the times, uh, but the the stories are, you know, aren't truly representative of, you know, of what's happening on the ground or with communities. And I think with, within this pandemic, it's important to tell the story as it evolves. And what we have discovered actually since doing this research is that the vaccine story has actually shifted quite a bit since we started. And I mean, the vaccine story in Kenya. So when we were doing this research, um, I believe there was just one or two vaccines in the market and quite limited. There was a prioritization of who would be getting those vaccines. So they started with healthcare workers and teachers and and, and essential workers, as you would call them. And, and so looking at that, which was maybe uh, four, four or five months ago, and now where we have almost all the vaccines available in Kenya, accessible uh, across in the country, the, that story has shifted. And I think it's important to to let the story evolve by itself. And it's important to um, also elevate the bright spots. There's a tendency to talk about the global South in a very um, sort of (laughs) uh, not constructive narrative in global health. And so I think just shifting a bit of that dynamic is is really important. You guys have a big role to play. considering that we're engaging with these communities often. Yeah, I mean, 100%. I think wherever humans are involved, and that's so important in healthcare, there is a role for creativity, right? You need to make sure that designers are um, shifting power or at least supporting the shift in power and conversations in agency uh, and becoming a medium through which this can happen in a more equitable way because you know I think as design researchers as human-centered designers as equity-centered designers I think we all um, are working pretty hard towards uh, just thinking about how do you make sure that people who are dealing with the problems are the people actually consulted when we're thinking about solving those problems, right? How do you solve? Firstly, what is the right problem to solve? I don't think the right problem is, oh yeah, whatever messages of vaccine acceptance are uh, flying around and popular in the US, let's copy paste them and stick it into Kenya or India or wherever, right? I think the right right problem here is, let's go find the context of 
where people are operating, what is their key priority, what do they care about, what are their concerns, and then uh, craft the right, right messages and solve the right problems in the right way. And the right way is to make sure that the people have the power to change what is happening to them. And that power shifting, I think, is important. And one where designers, like I was saying, is can actually have a pretty significant role. And creativity is required because resources are limited. Uh, we don't have a lot of resources in global health. We always find ourselves being scrappy, being inventive, being creative. And this is not just a global health thing, right? It's essentially the development, developing world, the, the entire global well, I don't want to say Google North and South, but, you know, basically everyone who's working in LMICs. And I think it's sort of important to make sure that um, we play our part in making that transition and in making a change. You did a research sprint in Kenya around uh, vaccine hesitancy, I believe. Can you describe how you conducted that? Um and the mechanic. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, I think it, it's worth mentioning that there are um, several partners who've been involved in this engagement. Um, I, I think uh, Pragya had mentioned JSI. Locally here in Kenya, we've been working very closely with PATH uh, Living Labs, uh, who are also an HCD design firm based here, as well as AMREF. I, I think one thing that we did differently as a firm and we're really excited about is partnering with another design firm to do this work. And we just saw the power of that collaboration. Wait, because, what, yeah, um, why did you do that? Traditionally, don't you all compete for clients <laughs> and for funding? <laughs> Uh, that that's right, um, and and I think um, that there's a lot of motivation that came behind this. But I think primarily we realized that for a topic such as vaccine hesitancy, we needed an organization that has the reach and the scale and the networks to be able to actually conduct research uh, at the rigor and, and depth that we wanted, but also to be able to disseminate these, these findings to, uh, across the networks um, that they would have. And so when we were thinking about a partner, we were really thinking about an, an implementation partner. Um, so uh, either a not-for-profit, a community-based organization, or a social enterprise that is working in the healthcare space as an implementer and have uh, the networks and, and the scale to support this work. Um, because ultimately, this is a national issue versus a, a very localized issue. And so um, we partnered with PATH, who are great, and have uh, the infrastructure and the team to, to run this type of research, at least in the communities that we were interested in. And we did have quite a bit of back and forth in terms of where should we do the research? I think Nairobi being a metropolitan city, um, you know, I, I, I think a lot was already happening in Nairobi in terms of people being aware of the vaccine. There weren't any major supply chain issues here. And so we thought that in order to be able to get a diversity in our sample and our findings, we need to have uh, we need to go beyond, you know, this comfort space of Nairobi. So we chose two counties, one that is on the lake side called Kusumu, is highly populous. At that point, they were just starting to get the vaccine, quite a bit of vaccine hesitancy happening there. And actually, at the time we were doing the research, there was um, a, way, a pretty bad 
COVID wave that had broken out in, in Kisumu. So it was such an, uh, an, an interesting and, and uh, heated time to do research. And then the second county we chose is Tukana, which is a northern country uh, county. And uh, the northern counties are pretty disconnected in the sense that they're uh, sparsely distributed, um, historically like pastor pastoral populations, um, often the last to receive any sort of uh, medications, challenges with supply chain, roads, access, and so on. And so that was the second county that we decided to do research with. And so we broke the sample into and paths focused on speaking to frontline healthcare workers. So doctors, nurses, clinical officers, and so on who are in these two counties. And then we spoke to community members. So we spoke to young people, old people, um, men and women in these communities. And so that's basically how, in terms of the location and the setup um, of the approach. But um, I would love for Joy and Mirad to share some of the stories of research and, and sort of how we, we collaborated in bringing the data together. I'm gonna, I'm gonna put Mirad on the spot. Oh, wow. Sure. So it's important to say that a lot of our insights and a lot of the findings that we had from speaking to the community was was influenced by a lack of transparency and information from their local governments, from their local healthcare workers, right? And so hesitancy, vaccine hesitancy was mostly driven by that lack of understanding of what to expect, where to get the vaccine why the vaccine was developed and in what way, and why they should trust the people that were giving out the vaccine to actually protect them. Um, so it was, and Joy, feel free to jump in as I talk about this, but I think, so the main things were that transparency bit and a lack of information, a lack of, um, a lot of myths going around, uh, like we said, based on social media, but for the older generations, it was more important that it was word of mouth. So your community members are a more trusted channel than your, your, your government sitting in Nairobi or your Ministry of Health sitting in Nairobi and telling you that you should take the vaccine, right? And I think a lot of this was also fueled by personal experiences. So we saw that older generations were more likely to take the vaccine or to want to take the vaccine because they had personal experiences of their friends, their family members being affected by COVID in a very real way. Whereas the younger generation wasn't really seeing that as much. And they're relying on international media and other sources of information that they could then compare to what was going on and the lack, the lack of communication from their own local governments and fill in the gaps of, 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 of that, that misalignment that was there. So for example, one thing that we saw with the AstraZeneca is in Europe, France and Germany were refusing to accept uh, the AstraZeneca. And so people were starting to ask, well, why not? And why are we not being told about why, why these countries are rejecting it, but why we, we've chosen to accept it? And so I think, um, and Joy, Joy has said this a few times this past week as well. It's like, we definitely saw people wanted to be treated like adults and be told what was good, what was bad and what to expect from the vaccine. And they wanted complete transparency. And that was that missing part was what was driving a lot of the hesitancy. Joy, did you find that people were more influenced by media that happened outside of Kenya on the vaccine than media within Kenya? 
Um, good question, actually. With our research, you are able to sort of classify um, the people we are speaking to into five archetypes. And um, the access to information um, and um, their level of hesitancy we found dependent a lot on their location um, and the access to information as well as age. Um, so I would say from our research, the younger urban population tended to rely on social media and international media, while the older age groups and those living in rural, rural and remote um, areas tended to rely on either local uh, sources of information or word of mouth um, and basically what they were hearing the community speak about. And they tended to trust these channels um, that are available to them more. So we found, especially the younger population um, who are very cynical, had a high level of access to international media and social media and could not see, for example, the same news you are seeing on the adverse effects, for example, from the vaccine being talked about in the local media sources, um, which increased um, their suspicion. This is some great research. I wish we, in the U.S., our health departments uh, on both a uh, local city scale or state scale, even even federal scale, would work with designers to get this type of research. I think we can learn a lot from the sophisticated research that you are doing in the global south uh, that we don't do as much of this type of research in the U.S. And my I'm kind of curious to know what your thoughts on that, because you're not the only example of a design firm in the global south doing this type of research. And I think, I just feel like I don't see as much of this type of research in the U.S. It, it does exist, but it's not out there as much. Yeah, I mean, that's a good question. I think, you know, there is something to be said about the nature of design research and the perceptions it brings in, especially in health experts, because in health, a lot of uh, quantitative data is valued very highly, right? And uh, when qualitative data is gathered, uh, it's often done to supplement all of the quantitative insights. And there's just this amount of rigor attached to uh, or the perception of rigor attached to, uh, you know, more traditional ways of, let's say, like doing surveys and crunching data and crunching numbers. And none of it is to actually miss any of those methods, because I think they're actually super valuable and we need all of it. But I think there's a there's a need to acknowledge mixed methods research and the humanity in the vaccine hesitancy, right? Like I keep coming back to the human element of it, but this is why designers are important. And I think people sort of uh, don't necessarily acknowledge the outsized role human attitudes and perceptions have to play in um, how these trends get governed. And um, actually, I do think there are folks who are doing this kind of research, but I think right now all of the funding is, is essentially like either being either being transmitted into making sure that there are enough vaccines, people are talking about booster shots, the government is making things mandatory. So, um, you know, I think there's also a little bit of, which is something we are also struggling with right now, even in the context of Kenya, which is, well, here's all this great research, what do we do with it now? No one, they, there's no plan to see it through and follow it through and execute on it in some ways, right? And uh, now that we've collected this data, there's so many different ideas and pathways of how we can take it forward. Uh, but, you know, like 
the funding for this kind of research is quite piecemeal. So you get funded only for the research part of it. And as soon as it comes to following through or taking it to the government and, you know, working with the government to actually implement some of these findings and translate it, things start getting lost in translation. And I think Aika and Joy and Merit can speak to how we're starting to do the dissemination in Kenya. But this model is definitely something we can learn from because I've seen the ministries of health be so much more open to design and design thinking and designers in countries that are throwing everything at it than, you know, places like the US where there, there are more designers, there are people who are doing this work, but don't necessarily connect the dots in that way. Yeah, and um, I think just further to that, um, there's definitely a deeper appreciation and understanding of human-centered design on this side of the world. And um, I think within the global healthcare space, increasingly so, um, it's still very much uh, niche, but I, I do think that the demonstration of the power of HCD is what has led to a lot more confidence and acceptance of the methodology. I think there's a bigger question, though, how we show up as designers, at least for me on, on this side of the world, you know, is still, it's still not <laughs> fully understood. Um, often we have to introduce ourselves as either HCD researchers or, you know, <laughs> I, I think when you, when you add the research. Oh, you can't, you can't even <laughs> introduce yourself as a designer. Why? Because people maybe roll their eyes or they scratch their heads or. I, uh, the, the, there isn't um, a lot of people like us. And I think historically, or at least when you say designer here, the first thing that people would think is, oh, fashion designer. Um maybe people who are more aware of the design field would think, okay, graphics designer, um, because the design field is still very new and in its, in its infancy here. And the design communities are really, really small. And most of the designers in East Africa and Kenya are actually UX, UI designers um, that, you know, emerged out of the tech hub here in Kenya. And so we're, we're still a little bit far off in that journey and, and still need to, to build a bit more legitimacy in this. Um, but I think that it's really exciting. And I think that, um, you know, in the places that we've been able to show up, it's been successful. I, I also do... Um, I think one thing that we are really keen to do in, in this dissemination is beyond sharing the, the results and the data is just tell the story in a different way and um, that we came up with a set of archetypes. And um, I think that's just a nice way to tell a story by putting the actual person there and, and bringing them to life with their story. Um, have as part of this plan a number of communication strategies that are quite targeted to the archetypes. And our desire is to take those strategies to a partner who can scale them more broadly within the country. And, and really, that's, that is the call to action that we have right now. We are seeking partners in the healthcare space in Kenya who can implement the communication strategies um, whether it's within counties or across counties, we're really open to partnering um, on that front. We're also reaching out to government to see if they can play a role in supporting this dissemination of these strategies as well. And really, you know, the intention here is not to reinvent the wheel because there is quite a bit of work that is already ongoing at the national level. There are um, 
there, there is quite a bit of messaging that the Ministry of Health is, is putting out. And we want to really complement that work that is happening and not necessarily replace it or kind of reinvent the wheel. We want to, to complement and partner with um, the existing initiatives that are out there. This is amazing. I could talk to you all forever. I think this is the first time we've had four designers on the podcast at once and a truly global conversation from Kenya to Seattle to Philadelphia. Woohoo, go design. Uh, I'm glad yeah. to represent. You could find out about the COVID-19 Vaccine Equity Project on the website vaccineequity.org. And thank you to the team at Dahlberg Design for joining us today. Thank you for having us, Juan. Thank you. Thanks, Juan. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with the Dahlberg Design team. You can find them on Twitter. Search for at D-A-L-B-E-R-G-D-E-S-I-G-N. And remember, go to Apple Podcasts, give us five stars, leave us a comment. We appreciate that. You can reach out to me by Twitter and Instagram. My Twitter handle is at B-O-N-K-U, Instagram at D-R-B-O-N-K-U. Design Lab was produced by Rob Puglisi. Our theme music was created by Emmanuel Houston and the cover design by Eden Liu. We will see you next week. Bye.